This episode is dedicated to Elliot S. for becoming our newest Southpaw supporter and helping to make this project possible. This is Sam. This is Julie. And this is Fight Study. On this fight study, we have retired MMA fighter, writer, teacher, and MMA broadcaster, Julie Kedzi. Welcome to the show, Julie. Hi, thank you for having me. For listeners who might not know, Julie was one of the early American pioneers of women's MMA. But after you got done fighting, you got into writing and even teaching. Can you tell us how that happened? Sure. Um, when I retired from fighting, like immediately within like, it was like a couple weeks after I retired from fighting, I had already been doing commentary for Invicta FC in their early shows. And Shannon said, would you like a job as the matchmaker? And I said, of course I would. And I realized um, after a while working in that position that there was no way I could do it if I was still living in Albuquerque and training with a specific team. So I decided to move to Kansas um, where Invicta's headquarters were because I really wanted I wanted to be fair. And I know that's so lame and nobody ever believed that I was actually being fair, but I tried. I wanted to be fair. I wanted to come from a position where all everything was a you know blank slate and all of the fighters coming up, I was taking them purely on how they were performing and what they were doing. And nobody ever believes me and they don't believe that I showed that as a as a um matchmaker. But luckily I I signed one of those things where I can't talk about my work as a matchmaker. So they'll never know. <laughs> but believe me, <laughs> the sacrifices, I did it. Like I, I moved there from Albuquerque. Um, so, and I lived in Kansas for a couple of years and I worked as a matchmaker. And what I realized was I loved the broadcasting and the analysis. And I actually loved matchmaking in a lot of ways, but it broke my heart when I saw them lose. And then I was on a microphone talking about like critiquing them and knowing that, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to negotiate this person's contract with them or their manager, or I'm going to have to do this. I was like, this is not my best skill set. This is not what's making me happy. And I had majored in English and I always knew that I was going to go back to school at some point after fighting. Um, I thought I was going to go to law school, honestly, but um, I joined a writing group um, Somebody in the MMA community, a writer in the MMA community, was a very good friend of mine and said, you know, you write these really long, detailed emails. Why don't you try doing some actual writing again? And I joined a writing group in Kansas City, and um, it was so much fun, and it was so great. And I wrote this essay um, that, I don't know, I wanted to do something more with. And um, Sports Illustrated ended up picking it up, um, Sports Illustrated Online. And I used that to apply for graduate school. And my family had, I, I've come from a family who really pursues higher education. And the fact that I only got like a bachelor's was like, well, when are you going to go to graduate school? When are you going to go to law school? You know, my sister has a double PhD. She just <laughs> published a book, by the way. It's a brilliant, brilliant book. Um, I'll plug it at the end if we get a chance, but it's called Origins. It's so good. Um, and my mother has a PhD. It's just like all of this, like, and they're like, when are you going to graduate school? When are you going to law school? It's like, I found the goddamn UFC. <laughs> like, isn't that enough? But <laughs> so, but you know, they were right in a lot of ways. There was, there was a part of me that needed to be um, pushed. 
And so I took, I studied actually very hard. Um, and then I took my GREs and I completely bombed, <laughs> <laughs> totally bombed them. And I was like, okay, well, I'm going to have to study even harder. I'm going to have to find a new learning method to do this. Um, Cause what I got away with as an undergrad in terms of my academic achievements is not working like 20 years later or however long it had been. So I was like, I've really, you know, I've really got to figure this out. But in the meantime, I'm just going to put in my application to the schools that don't require GREs for writing. And um, they were Columbia and Iowa. And both of them took me. And so I was like, great. And Iowa like had this, you know, this um, University of Iowa has this tremendous writing program. So does Columbia. But the thought of what really kept me from going to Columbia, well, there are two things. One of them was I went to visit Iowa and it was actually the wife of one of the writers there looked at me and just gave me this enormous hug and said, I hope you get to meet my dog someday. I know that <laughs> sounds so superficial, but it completely, that was like, you're landing where I am. I'm in my thirties right now. Like I'm, I have a dog, I have two cats. Like, and then I thought about Columbia and how it would be so hard to have the animals that I cared about so much in the city. And I was like, you know, I really like New York. I think it's a tremendous city, but I was like, I think I'm just going to stick in the Midwest for a while. And um, so I, I let Shannon Knapp know that I'd gotten into graduate school and she was so supportive. You know, it's like, I don't think people understand the sacrifices that woman makes, but they're, they're really huge. And it was just like, she was like, okay, well, let me give you a co-matchmaking position with Caitlin Young, who is, you know, she was considering like retiring from MMA and just doing Muay Thai at that point. And um, I think Caitlin's now, yeah, she went back into MMA. Yeah. Um, Caitlin is like me, but like version 3.0, like she's so much better <laughs> me and so many things and we balance each other so well i just love her but um and so she's like well, i'll just i'll split it up and you'll be co-matchmakers and the truth was when i went to graduate school i had no idea how hard it was going to be in my 30s and that was when i you know i discovered how much i needed therapy every human being needs therapy like our brains just need to be you know we need to grow with our brains and so i discovered that in kansas city i had great or in lawrence kansas i should say i had a great therapist there i went to iowa and i got an even better therapist in iowa and she was like you really need to get tested for adhd and at the time i'd heard about it before but i was like 36 37 and i was like that's not a real thing i mean come on i'm too old for that now and i had done the usual you're not supposed to say that you play around with drugs when you're fighting you know but Let's be honest. I've been out of the sport for so long. Who cares? Like I, somebody gave me Adderall one time and I was like, this is fun. Oh, maybe it'll make me skinny and I'll make weight better. And then I remember the first time I took it and then I like drove on a highway, not scared that all the cars were going to crash into me. It was like things were totally focused for me. And I had no idea what that feeling was like. No idea. That's almost a diagnosis right there, right? How it affects you versus other people. Yeah, exactly. Like I felt so, but you know, and still people just, they shit all over it, right? I'm sorry for my language, but they do. It was just like, like what, when I was in Rogan, he was like, oh, everybody's on, on speed. And that actually, when he said that, that like totally hurt my feelings. Cause I was like, oh, but this, this makes me see the world more clearly. This makes me able to talk to people <laughs> and not spiral off in these things, you know? And um, it had been, I mean, I didn't get the diagnosis until I was like 36 or 37. So it was crazy to know, but it's also like, it's not the best drug in the world Adderall. Like I'm on the other one now, Vyvanse. But I saw so much more of my potential when I was on it. And I was so much able, I don't know, it's like my thoughts 
were still all there, but they were able to say on one thing at a time as opposed to spiraling off and me just fucking around because I couldn't figure out what I was supposed to do with my hands. I don't know if that makes sense. No, it does. It opened a huge door for me. And, um, you know, it, but still, grad school is super, super hard. So everybody's on it anyway there. So, you know, you do kind of doubt your own diagnosis a lot. But I had such a good therapist in grad school. And I remember going back to fighting and everything like that. I remember, you know, um, after the first Invicta show where I was a co-matchmaker, I was like, like after the show, I went up to Shannon. Of course, it was the worst place, worst time for me to do this, which she's, again, an incredibly generous human being. And I was like, yeah, I don't think after the show, I was like, I don't think I could be matchmaker anymore because Caitlin did all the work. <laughs> I was just like, I didn't do anything. Grad school is hard and my brain is weird and I have to figure this out as I go. And I don't ever want to get away from doing the job that I do in commentary because I love that. And I love the analysis and I love researching the fighters and just watching them and getting to know them. But I can't matchmake anymore. I have to give grad school 100%. And um, she was like, okay. I believe in your future. Don't worry about it. Wow. Yeah, that was what she said when I said, I want to go to grad school. And she was like, okay, I'll make you co-matchmaker. And so, like, I mean, really, that's a tremendous attitude from her. Everybody has their flaws. But I think at the end of the day, what really matters about her is that she cares about every single one of those athletes. And she cares about the people on her team. And she wants them to do well. And, you know, again, everybody's human. Everybody has their flaws. But she's given so much to so many people. And it's just like, my God, you know. I'm glad that I do what I do because it has given me the freedom to like, I have to have a full-time job in addition to being a commentator. Um, and I, I mean, when COVID hit, I lost a whole bunch of my future. I had a whole bunch of prospects on the table and it all just washed up. So for two years I was unemployed and living with my sister and her husband and my mother and her son. <laughs> I mean, my sister's son, so my nephew. So it's like, it was like everything was taken away from me, like all at once. And it was just like the long distance. It didn't work with my boyfriend. Everything just kind of crashed around me. But I ended up getting a job. I will live on my own again at some point. I'm just kind of trying to get it so that I won't be in massive debt when I do so. And it's actually kind of nice living with my whole family and being in Kansas again. Like, I, I don't know, it's it's a hard place to be until you learn about it and you learn about the history. And then it, it really, it's kind of tremendous here, especially Lawrence. I mean, John Brown, the history, like I'm a civil war buff. So the history here is insanely cool. How did you get started teaching writing? Because I know you teach a course on that too. Yeah. So I started teaching when I was in grad school. I mean, that's a, the great value of um, graduate students is their cheap labor. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so yeah, they had to teach all the undergrad classes, especially the freshman classes. Um, so I taught, I taught rhetoric actually for a couple of years, which really made me um, a very prickly person. <laughs> like rhetoric is tremendous. It's cool as hell, but it's also like when you have to, I don't know, it's like, it just, it really, it, it does, it does make you like understand that everything comes from a certain viewpoint and you just cannot get the uh, subjective out of the world as much as you want to. Um, so I taught rhetoric for two years and I worked in a writing center while I was in grad school. And then I finally got to teach creative writing and I was teaching um, like a fiction poetry introduction to nonfiction class. And then when I graduated, uh, I was given a position at Iowa. And it's kind of this great position. It's like a postgraduate position where you teach your field to advanced creative writers and then, you know, because that doesn't really pay very much, you also teach 
well, especially while you're working on your book, which I got nothing done on my book at that point because <laughs> teaching takes up a lot of your life. But um, I, I also was uh, I also was teaching a, a freshman introduction to literature class, which is way harder to teach because I don't care and you want to care, but it's just like, no, I want to teach the thing that's my field and that I want to see these kids like thrive with the essay. And so I was teaching at Iowa. I was teaching two advanced grade writing courses. And one of them was called, uh, which I designed myself. It was called the, um, it was like a history of the essay and violence. And um, it was just about how like, in because when I came to grad school, I came on the, the premise of me writing this book as an MMA fighter or an ex MMA fighter. Right. And like seeing this, this thing of violence. And then I was introduced to a whole world I had no idea about. Wait, what's your book about right now? It's essays of my experience in MMA um, or just experiences with MMA. I should say, you know, my time in Albuquerque, my time in Indiana and just like, kind of a lot of the deceptions I was introduced to in this world, a lot of the realizations I had to come to and a lot of the truths that I came to and just like how weird it is that you come to all this at such a late time in your life. So it's about MMA. It's about violence. It's about trying to figure things out. And honestly, like it's not worth reading right now because as much as I want to make it good, it still sounds like, like an angry teenage girl, you know, (laughs) (laughs) like, Hey, and, and, that's not where I want to be. I, I want to do something special. So it might take a while. Um, but what I also realized in grad school was like, I was real precious about the idea of violence, that it was only like human contact to human contact or, you know, or like environmental contact to human where it was in terms of physicality that, you know, the violence of words and the violence. I didn't think that was violence, the violence of oppression. And all these things. And it's not that I didn't think it was violence. I just thought violence was the, the wrong word for those things like erasure and things like that. And because it just didn't seem like it was enough, but that made me come to the realization, especially when I was designing this course to teach because teaching, teaching makes you realize as a teacher, you have to learn this shit. Like you have to know what you're talking about. And even if you mess it up when you're trying to explain it to the kids, at least you know that you've struggled to get this truth yourself. So you're being honest. Nobody likes when teachers mess up, but the truth is, when teachers mess up and they don't stay firm in that and they change their minds in the face of a student challenging them, it's because they are also grappling with deeper truths. And that's what I was. I was just like, I, you know what? Violence is a lot more than I'm saying. So I taught that class and I taught a class called fight writing. And I wanted to take, I had become extremely fascinated in writing my thesis, which is going to turn into my book. I, I become totally like fascinated to the point of obsession with the civil war, the American civil war, I should say. And just, just trying to get my mind around it. And I think if I'm honest with myself, a lot of that was the ruptures in my own life and trying to come to terms with how the things that I thought were true were not true and how disruptive that was to me, even at the advanced age of whatever, 30 something (laughs) forties now, but like just not like the things that I just thought were just absolute truth were absolutely not truth. And they were a version of truth. And, and, I think that the American Civil War did a lot of things, but what it really ultimately did was rupture systems um, and systems of belief. And it's just like, it's not like this was the war that freed the slaves, like I was taught in school, but it was also like, this is the war where like an entire segment of humanity was not recognized entirely. I shouldn't say that about black people in America, 
but we're almost you know, like we're starting to be recognized as actual human beings. You know, like I, I know that the 1619 project and all these other things are are critiqued so many times by so many places, but there's when you come from the background that I did in uh, academics, where the essay is not just the words on the page that say the thing that cite this and cite this, but it's actually how multiple experiences can actually make up truth and fact and truth and fact are not the same standpoints different standpoints yeah and there's there's absolutely no fact in this world without how that fact affected people and how that fact affected people like a natural disaster or war how it affected multiple standpoints like you said is the only way we're ever going to come to arriving at some kind of truth you know and so it was just like i don't know it was all of these things were come going through my mind when i was just like i just had these things that i thought were real truths in my life especially as a fighter especially where i came from and having them challenged by my own brain and through therapy and through just like working on things was just like it was tremendous for me i've said tremendous like eight times but it was <laughs> it was a big deal for me and um I think the Civil War, in a lot of ways, grounded me in seeing that that could that that's happened on a giant scale. Mm, so it's kind of a linchpin for you for all your different realizations. Yeah, and also an escapism because then I didn't actually have to reckon with my own past and my own failures. I could just escape in the past, right? I could think about these things and just like focus on them, like focus on Pickett's charge and like you know the effects that had on everything instead of like oh, wow, Julie, you know, maybe there's something about this that's telling you something about what's fractured in your mentality. <laughs> so it was, uh, it did lead to me teaching this fight writing class. And I thought this fight writing class at Iowa was, we're just going to talk about war and then we're going to go all the way to hand-to-hand combat. We're going to start with like a history of this and this, you know, and it, both of those classes, the history of the essay and violence, my students were so smart. I remember the second semester I was teaching that class and in the the fight writing class, they were just, they were all smart in so many ways. And I was like, these are undergrads, seniors who know way more about the world than I ever will. Like these kids are, these kids are awesome. You know, it's just like, I don't want to grade any of them. Like, this is dumb. Like grades are dumb, (laughs) but they're helpful with freshmen, I will say. But, (laughs) um, but what I, I did come to realize is the second semester, I said, you know, one of my questions with the history of the essay and violence was, you know, we talk about the essay, like the five paragraphs, this, and instead you see people who dance and it's an essay. Um, you see people who write, you know, they paint images on walls or in caves and that's an essay. It's telling you what you need to know. It's telling you what happened. It's telling you the effect of what happened or the interpretation of what happened and how you need to reconcile those things or how, you know, how you approach those things is so, it says so much about you and it says so much about how they're trying to communicate and I remember um, I, I had this student who I said, what is history? And, and one, of, one of them answered, she said, well, I think history is a fractured mirror. And, and the way we all see ourselves in the piece first, or we all see a reflection of what we want or what we recognize about ourselves in it first. And then we try to put the pieces together, but we can't stop seeing ourselves but like the more you realize it's fractured because you're putting pieces together, and the more you realize how much you are fractured in what you're putting together. And I was just like, okay, god damn it, this girl like is an A plus and she should be teaching this class. <laughs> like, what am I even doing in here? This is amazing. She started therapy before you did. I obviously <laughs> she started a lot before I did. She saw a lot more than I did. But it was it was amazing because what 
also what teaching taught me is that all the things that I was very defensive about, about being a white cis woman in this system who'd had privilege before, but, you know, also I had a hard life. I did not have an easy life and I didn't have an easy life in fighting, but it was nothing compared to what other people, especially people of color have had in the system that I, that was designed to support me, even though I may have bucked the system in so many ways. And then when I was teaching to have these kids, like white kids, kids of color, kids from different countries, kids, you know, of different, however they identified, this was so easy for them to grasp because they'd lived it. It it, it was like, wow, I have been in a goddamn bubble in the MMA world. And I had no idea because I thought that was the big, we're all sharing our experiences on the mat and we all bleed red, right? Because that's what you're taught. Like, oh yeah, everybody's equal in the gym. They're not. Because you may have find some kind of equality when you punch somebody in the face and you score, but that doesn't that doesn't translate to all other parts of your world. Is Iowa where you met Carrie Howley? Yeah, she was my um, mentor and advisor. She was my thesis advisor. Yeah. So for listeners, Carrie Howley wrote the only philosophical MMA narrative I'm aware of <laughs> called Throne. I contacted her actually after reading the book, and we became kind of internet friends. So. Oh. I was surprised to see how you two were at the same school because you're an MMA fighter getting into writing and she was a writer getting into MMA. So it almost seemed like inverse realities colliding. Oh my God. Carrie was somebody, I swear to God, who kept me sane there. After like, I think I had her first semester um, as my... Oh yeah, no, no, Carrie. Like seriously, if you still talk to her, I I owe her everything at that school. Like I that that lady. I mean, it's just like, I mean, if there's anybody who's like a living, oh, I shouldn't say living because she just died, but I mean, who's the embodiment of what Joan Didion like did in terms <laughs> of Carrie's? She's such a brilliant writer, and she's so thoughtful and incredibly kind. And oh, I I really really like her. That's that's a really great lady. And it's like, I don't know, I. When we were all trying to get thesis of advisors, I got into a pretty heated battle about getting her as my advisor. Like, no, I want Gary. <laughs> well, what you said about fighting and the quality of fighting and the phenomena of fighting, it made me think about her book as well. From that standpoint, you could kind of see how you could convince yourself that's the world because it is this like type of like qualia, this type of experience you're going through. And so you think that's it, right? But then school taught you and meeting different people taught you that's not it. That's not all of it. That's some of it. Oh, for sure. And in grad school, I was in this class that was literally called the bad class. Like my class in grad school, they were all younger than me. They were all brilliant. And then like, it was just, it was God awful. Like one of them got kicked out. One of them dropped out. One of them died. Like it was just, it was such the worst grad school, like cohort, like experience you could ever have. But one of the things that they all like just pushed into my head over and over again was like, I had no idea. And I was this privileged, white, cis, spoiled lady, and I just did not know. And I, I hate, I hesitate to use the term Karen. And I, I think I've said this before on Twitter, but my Twitter account's pretty blocked. Um, but I, I, the Karen was the name of my younger sister who died of a really terrible disease when she was like nine months old. And so like when I use that term, it's like, the effect of that that it can have on my mother, who like is an incredible human being, like so calling myself a Karen is like there. There's a lot of weight in that, and I don't want to do that. But if you can take that 
Well, a lot of misogynists have also co-opted that, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, they're always going to co-opt everything, aren't they? <laughs> but <laughs> but that label, if you can take what what's kind of behind that label as opposed to that exact label. The argument that, that it's making. Yeah, I was certainly that person without knowing it. It's like, oh, I'm, I'm colorblind. And, uh, like, oh, that's so the gym culture, right? It is. It is. And it's what they like. It's what's pushed in you so that those moments can continue. It's like, you know, I am absolutely positive that I was an insane, flaming, racist, homophobic piece of shit without even knowing it. And that's something that, like, I feel like I've spent a lot of time apologizing for. But you can only apologize so much before it's just kind of like a refrain and you're not doing the moving on work. But it was, it wasn't deliberate. And that's not an excuse. But it's the truth. Like, you know, it's just like, that's, you know, it's the truth of that position is like, you just actually haven't been taught how the casual word is horrible if you're not considering it, which kind of is another reason that it's really hard to write my book because I have the essays out there, but it's like in workshop, my cohort, they were the bad class, but goddamn, if they didn't call me in every single thing so that I was paralyzed to write anything ever. And so it was just like, oh my God, everything I'm saying and everything I'm trying to lay out here, there is no circumstance that I can get this out there without hurting people. And I was like, okay, well, you have to make a list of which people you want to hurt. And are they the ones with privilege? Okay, then make your choice. Those are the ones who are going to keep you from getting good book deals. But they may be the ones who need lashing out at the most or, you know, it's hard to do. And it's the end of the day, you realize every human being is a human being. and. I don't know that I want anybody on my side except me. And I want, if that means never publishing, maybe that's okay. It's the struggle of growing while editing, right? Oh my God, it's horrible. <laughs> A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content, as well as our private chat group on Discord. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. You mentioned earlier that you were a matchmaker and you had the struggle of like being commentator at the same time, which makes sense. But just for people who don't understand what matchmaking is, what exactly is it and what are some of the difficulties that people might not be aware of so everybody when they're watching fights or if they're familiar with mma or kickboxing or boxing everybody's a matchmaker when they sit down they're like well i would have this guy fight this guy yeah you know that's what everybody thinks it's gonna be like and that's that's a fun game to play but you don't realize how much one person's getting paid as opposed to another one or what difficulties like somebody might be injured but they really don't want their opponents to know it so they're not going to tell them or you have the prime candidates for a fight wanting to fight your, oh, let's say Adam weight challenger or champion, excuse me. You have a bunch of challengers sitting there, like 10 of them, and they all turn down the fight because they think they can get more money or they, it's, the timing's not good or they think they're going to get into the UFC. And so you end up matching up the champion who happens to be a close friend of yours with <laughs> somebody who everybody on the other side of the world says they shouldn't have that and Julie's corrupt for doing this. I mean, just paraphrase or, you know, just a circumstance here. <laughs> but it's just like, you're just like, I've been through 10 people who have turned this fight down 
this is the person who's going to take it and this fight needs to happen because I promised it to champion and I promised it to, you know, like it's, it's on the card, it's happening. And this person says they'll take it. So I'm going to give it to them because they've done great things in their career. However, anybody recognizes that now or not. And I mean, that's the shit you have to go through. It's like, and I want to be kind to, other matchmakers because it's a struggle but i think what happens most of the time is you put your own interests above everybody else and so when that is put in comparison or in, in relief to matchmakers who don't do that who are usually matchmakers earlier in their career like it makes everybody look bad and it sucks because I think at the end of the day, everybody wants, every matchmaker really wants good fights that are going to highlight one thing or another. But you're dealing with contracts and you're also dealing with an entire card of people. And that is so hard because if one fight falls through, you have to make allowances in other fights or you have to make, you have to balance things out in other fights because you're on a budget. And that's, I mean, that's capitalism, right? Like what I would want to do is pay everybody like gazillions of dollars all the time including myself <laughs> so I can survive <laughs> in this economy and have my own apartment again. <laughs> but it's, it's like, it's working within systems and also trying to be fair. And sometimes it's not fair. And it's like, Oh, it's insane because you're the person as matchmaker. So many of the times who gets all the blame, but none of the credit. And that's what you sign up for. I wonder if part of that is because most people, when they think of matchmaking for MMA, they think of the UFC. And I feel like, Matchmaking is not matchmaking. The problems you have as a matchmaker for the UFC, the biggest organization for MMA in the world, is going to be different from Invicta, right? So sometimes maybe they project, you know, some of the heinous things like a big mega company making gazillions of dollars, some of the harsh things they're doing, and they project that onto something you might be doing at Invicta, right? But you don't have that kind of money. You don't have that kind of leverage. Oh, for sure. And also, it's like the like the UFC model with female fighters is different. I mean, I'd like to say it's not, but it is different. And it's, I think it's catching up. But it, with female fighters, it was almost always what's marketable before what what's going to be good or Chris Cyborg would have been signed there like in the first go around. Right. Like it, but it's always like, what's marketable, what's marketable. Oh, there's just not enough people for that division. It's like, well, how many people do you have at heavyweight really who are champion material? I mean, you guys like play that card about it's not a deep enough division when it suits you, but not, when, <laughs> Hey, let's look other places or let's figure this out. No, the UFC in so many ways, it, <laughs> I have so many critiques, but at the end of the day, you know, it's just like that was the biggest game in town when I was, you know, when I was an active fighter and that was the, you know, that was the one you wanted to be. But now I can sit back here and I can play armchair quarterback. I'm not the UFC matchmaker. I'm not anything to do with them. I'm not even an active fighter. So I can sit here and be like, yeah, I'm going to critique you guys because I have not been in your exact position. No, but on the other hand, I've never had millions to play with. <laughs> And I know that that makes the stakes bigger, but it's, you know, yeah. You don't even have to critique them because another person we know, Jennifer McLaren, has <sighs> written a great book that does oh, all the critiquing for us. Yes. Fighting Visibility. Read that book. Yes. Fighting Visibility. Oh my gosh. I have two copies of that, actually. I forgot I pre-ordered one and then she sent me one when I talked to her. So I was like, oh, crap. <laughs> yeah, no, it's Fighting Visibility. So good. Yeah. Yeah. So there's another book for people to check out on top of your future book. But let's talk about Invicta. How did Invicta start? 
I think that that's Shannon's story to tell entirely. But, you know, what she said publicly is she saw that there wasn't that platform for women to actually grow and thrive without having to fight for a space on the card against the men. And as much as everybody wants to say it's equal, I know that the UFC starts everybody on the same salary now, which is fantastic. And it's a great, well, it's a great starting salary for me when I was where I was. It's, I've never seen money. I've never seen the money really. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like I was still lowest of the low. I never won in the UFC. But um, what, she did was she allowed women to grow and thrive in a platform where they didn't have to fight for a spot on the card. That doesn't mean that every woman gets every spot in every card. They still have, you know, it's still, you have to go through the process of elimination and figuring out what's going to be the best fight, but it does even things up a lot more. So it's an all female organization that started in 2012 and it, um, it was just kind of a chance for women to have, I think the the tagline was a cage of our own, which is, you know, it's, it's, I mean, I, I cute as a reductive term, but it is in comparison to, you know, the baseball movie that I've told a league of their own. Yeah. It, it, it makes a lot of sense. Right. More in 2012 too. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. In 2012 it did. Strike force was ending then women were going to the UFC, but Dana White had very clearly said it's the Ronda division. So there was, you know, there was a lot of hesitancy as to where women would go next. And so um, for those of us who had been fighting on some international cards, mostly local cards, mostly just, you know, taking fights when they could, wherever they could, it was kind of the chance to have a league behind them that was all women. So at least you didn't have to put up with the sexism bullshit. And it's, gosh, it's, you know, 2022, 10 years in, um, gosh, April, May, something like that. It'll be 10 years. So yeah. It's outlasted a lot of other companies. So you mentioned that right when you were done with MMA, you went to work for Invicta. As a matchmaker. Yeah, I'd already been doing commentary. So I did the first, I, I was there for the very first Invicta show um, with Marl Ronaldo and Mo Lawal. And um, I was a color commentator. And I remember when I got the call to do that, I thought she was going to offer me a fight. And I didn't know if I was in the UFC or not at that point, because I... Um, when I fought Misha Tate in, I think it was 2012, 2011 or 2012, something like that, like I tore my shoulder really badly and I had to have corrective surgery. So I was out um, of the UFC. I was out for of everything um, with that surgery. Um, yeah. So I like, I had no idea if I was going to be picked up with the rest of the 135ers. I was like on a two fight losing streak, which I extended to a four fight losing streak when I was picked up by the UFC. <laughs> but <laughs> that's the game. Well, how did you know you were done with MMA? It, I, you know, that's the story I actually published in Sports Illustrated Online. Um, it was one of those things where after the fight with Jermaine Durant, Oh God, I'm saying her name wrong. Durandamy? Yeah, Durandamy. I'm sorry. I don't know why I'm saying her name wrong. I, I fought her and I, I think she's <laughs> a really fantastic athlete. I knew it then, but it's, this is way with all, it's been a very long time <laughs> since I've had to say these names out loud, I think. Well, some of your, the prospects that you fought on the way are retired too, like Bez Correa. So that's how long it is. Yeah. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah, I always considered myself like the champion like or the at least the the champion contender maker or something i was the best stepping stone to show that somebody was ready for a title shot (laughs) like seriously everybody who fought me always got a title shot not me but (laughs) the people who fought me were always right there so um yeah maybe it says something about like at least i gave them a good enough of a fight to show that they were title material i don't know or contender material but yeah i 
um, after the fight against Misha Tate and Strikeforce, um, I lost. I tore my shoulder really badly during that fight, and um, I had corrective surgery, so I was out forever. Like they had to repair all of my labrum. It was like insanely painful. I was kind of like, I didn't know if I was with the UFC or not. So I wasn't committing to anything when I was given opportunities. Like I can't fight right now. I have an injury, blah, blah, blah. But when Shannon called me, I was actually helping somebody train in a gym in Las Vegas. Like I'd left, not left Albuquerque, but I I'd traveled there to help a friend train. I got this call and I was like, oh man, she's offering me a fight in this women's league. I've heard about rumors about it. It should be so good. She's like, no, I, I, I like the way you speak. I'd like to see if you want to try commentary. I was like, well, fuck yeah, I do. It's <laughs> amazing. Of course, saying fuck yeah is probably an indication that my commentary would always be a source of dissension for fans. <laughs> but <laughs> um, no, and I went it, I did it. And I mean, I don't know if I was the greatest at it, but God, did I love it. Did I feel, I mean, you just feel so alive when you're doing it. And you're, I don't know how to explain it, except that you're this pathway for all of these ideas that you might have as a fighter and what you're seeing that's brilliant, like live in front of you and how you can communicate that. It's like the best job for a writer in the world. I think commentary, like it's just, you get, but you you're under the gun to say the words that you can't say on the page right away, but you can say them as they're happening. And you just have to let go. You know, uh, I remember one of my old coaches used to talk about the, like, the flow experience that has to happen to be, you know, when you're fighting, how you have to engage with your body and your mind and kind of everything at the same time and just let go of it. And you can reach that in commentary. I can. And maybe it's because my background was words and fighting, but it's just, I've always felt so happy about it. After a show, I feel like, I feel the same way I feel after a fight, to be honest, with maybe less bruises, just totally like that post-fight blue, like, oh God, everybody's talking shit about me again. Like, But during it, it's just, you feel so alive and you feel, you know what you're saying because you've been in those situations. There's very few situations that you haven't been in if you had as many fights as I've been in. And maybe they haven't been live before, you know, a huge audience or, or broadcast on TV, but you've been there. You know those feelings that people might be feeling and you know the things that they need to do or not need to do. And it's like you're coaching both sides at the same time, but you're coaching the crowd to, or the, you know, whoever's listening and mostly yourself to understand what's happening and understand why it's important. And I love that. And I don't know, Mauro, I loved Mo. We didn't talk maybe as much as, as Mauro and I did, but Mauro was a tremendous like mentor to me. Oh God, that was like the eighth time I've said tremendous. Maybe I am a bad commentator. <laughs> but he, he was he was so helpful and he guided me in so many ways. So was the ending of your fighting and the beginning of your broadcasting more about you found that you enjoyed doing that more? Um, I'd like to say that, but I was going through personal stuff um, and emotional stuff and just realizing some truths that when I was in Australia, it was right before the Betch Cohea fight which was like the one fight that I missed commentary on ever. Um, unless there was some, there's another team replacing me. You know, there's another team working at an event. Um, but one where I said, I can't come to this, I'm fighting. And so like, uh, I think Misha Tate stepped in for me that day, but it was like, I was in Australia and it was right before I fought Betch. And I was just like this, I don't want to do this anymore. And I had had, after the Jermaine fight, I'd had, I, I actually went to a mental coach and I was just like, look, I've had three fights in a row that haven't gone my way. And like a split decision that I thought should have gone my way, didn't go my way. What am I doing? You know, I was like, I was going through this therapy and, and while I was in therapy with this like mental coach, I was like, I don't believe anything you're telling me. 
And that's also something you need to be aware of in therapy. If you don't believe what somebody's telling you, maybe what you're telling them isn't the truth too. And so there was just a lot I had to come to in my mind, a lot of personal stuff, a lot of emotional stuff, a lot of stuff that was going on in the co- in my life with my coaches and with my team that I was just like, I, this isn't registering for me the way it used to. And that's super, super important. And I think in a lot of ways, like when I said, I told my coach backstage at, um, at the bench fight, right before we walked out, I was like, I'm done. And I had been physically throwing up and had diarrhea before that fight. I could not figure out what was wrong with me. But it was like, we'd asked, that was when Burt Watson was still working with the UFC. And I was like, Burt, we need an extra bucket in case I throw up in between rounds because I can't stop vomiting. And he's like, okay. <laughs> so he like snuck an extra bucket underneath the one bucket. And I was just like, I can't stop puking. I don't know what's happening to me. But it was just like, as soon as I said the words, this is this my last fight? It was like, my stomach stopped roiling. Like it, it, everything just was like, okay, that's it then. And that was it. And it was just like, it was my 29th professional fight. I'd had other fights that weren't counted as pro and kickboxing fights and all this other shit. But yeah, I was just like, no, that's it. And I walked out there and I thought I won, but I also knew it wasn't my best performance, which is a sad thing to say against Besh Kohea. <laughs> but <laughs> you know, she was a mystery fighter in a lot of ways. It was really hard to figure her out because she's just a hard person to figure out, man. <laughs> like, she, I don't know. You don't look good fighting her. You never do unless like, Rhonda looked good and Holly looked good at that one knockout, but it's hard to look good fighting her. <laughs> like, um, and that's a real gift on her part as a fighter. Like she does something to you. She kind of hypnotizes you with the weird way she moves or it's like, what is happening out there? But, um, no, I knew before that fight, I said it before that fight and I didn't go back on that. It was just like, and nobody believes it was right before the fight, but it was like, I just was like, I'm done. I can't explain it, but I'm done. And I never really, I still can't explain it. You go back and you think about the things that are going on in your life or what's going on with you physically or emotionally. And for whatever reason, it was my body or some part of me defending itself against other components of my life that were not good for me. That was just like, nope, you're done. And I mean, that kind of catapulted me into basically where I am now. Like I had already done commentary before and I'd loved it. Shannon hired me as a matchmaker after that fight. And then I think it was like a week after that fight. It was like really soon. And then I moved to Kansas like a few months later, you know, left Albuquerque, left everything there and was just like, I'm done. And uh, yeah. And then from Kansas, I went to oh, Iowa to grad school and then came back to Kansas and here I am. Who are some of the Invicta alumni that we might not be aware of? Marlus Kunin, Chris Cyborg, um, Oh, Ayaka Hamasaki. I'm writing about her, one of her fights right now, and just watching her. God, what a, God, what an amazing athlete Hamasaki is. Um, Erica DiBersio, Michelle Watterson. There's that whole crew of strawweights too, like Carla Sparza, Felice Herrig, Claudia Gadella. I know I'm saying her, I'm not giving enough to her name with the Portuguese pronunciation. I'm sorry. Um, oh my God. Um, there's so many. I, every single UFC champion, I think at this point, except for Valentina, and Valentina was the champion in the Bruised movie. So as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> she's one of our champions. It has been an Invicta alumni. Like it's it's the amount of talent that's come from that show is incredible. Um, the like Irene Aldana and oh. uh, yeah, she started with. Uh, well, I mean, she started in Mexico, but she started with us. She got notoriety with us. Um, 
who else? Oh my gosh. Basically, most of the at least contenders to champions in the UFC have fought in Invicta. Oh yeah, and I mean they're bringing in names and faces that I don't know. They like they're they know how to scout and stuff like that. But I mean it's just like um I remember trying really hard to get you on and Jay Chick. You said the hardest name easily. <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, I'm Polish, so it helps. <laughs> but yeah, I remember wanting to get her very badly. And I, like there was a whole, like, but that's when we were on Fight Pass, there was like a whole contingent of fighters who had already been like brought up by the, taken by the UFC before we got a chance. Like I got a chance to even work with them as a matchmaker and she was one of them. And I was so mad. I was like, you fight, I want that one. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, like, um, but there's, there's other, people who like are, are brand new that i mean for all of their faults for how much we blame the ufc the fact is they have showcased women in a way that mma or mainstream mma if you want to talk like in i guess weird colloquial terms or whatever i don't know like that you know people would never have seen and that's pretty cool even if they've downplayed them or talked shit about them the entire time it, it has been there and that's it's a pretty cool thing if you're on the outskirts and you're like, all right, well, this person is around. Let's see who they're training with. Let's see who, you know what I mean? Like you do that kind of scouting. Let's see who they fought and how those fights went. Let's see this and that. Cause there's no, there's great databases for, for fighters, but there's no all encompassing one that actually tells you about their worst challenge or, you know, what they went through. And that's your job as a matchmaker sometimes is to like go through these things. And I love that part. I loved that research, which actually plays into commentary really well. Cause you can sit there and spend hours on one fighter and their record and everybody they fought and just feel totally inspired. Maybe not by them, but like by their worst fight and what that produced in the other person. Yeah. And that's, that's what makes fighting so cool is that there are, so many threads you can pull on that don't just teach you about that fighter on one day in their life against one person who is maybe having the best day in their life when that fighter is having the worst day, but like what it tells you about yourself as a fighter. Um, that's why color commentators, man, like that's a great job. You know who does a really good job at it? Who? Freaking Laura Sanko, man. Laura Sanko, she gets that. She gets it. I am, I've seen people talk so much shit about her and i'm just like i don't know what is wrong with you people because she is so good and she's gonna be she's uh yeah she's gonna take over the world i am like laura sanko uber fan yeah i think they let her even do a fight analysis thing on their ufc youtube show where they do like an hour-long like breakdown of technique and what are people good at and she killed it of course she did they shouldn't let her they should beg her to do that they should beg her to do that i'm telling you she knows what's up and she's got like she's got an a background in broadcasting that i would never like i i never had that i never understood that and she's so good like she can put it together she can put the fighting and the way to to communicate it to she's just so good they she should be on every pay-per-view like freaking at the table i I never stop cheering about that it's one thing that i hate is that like megan olivi is also insanely good yes but i'm just like the fact that they only think there can be one or the other is the dumbest thing ever yeah there shouldn't be one woman (laughs) it should be the person who's really good at it which is both of them yeah as if like a quota right like Karen Bryant's really good. Angela Hill is really good. Like, why? I don't know why they they limit it. 
because it's only we're gonna leave this many female voices. But none of them actually get to sit in the actual broadcast booth. Right. Yeah. No, no, that's that's for the people who talk about themselves all the time. <laughs> so how does Invicta structure their shows? Is it like fight night shows and then they have numbered shows? Um, yeah, from what I understand, and I don't know the details of the Anthem contract exactly, because again, I'm not inner circle on that with Axis and Anthem, but it's numbered shows, it's tournament shows, and then it's pay-per-view shows. But like, it's... I think it's me and TJ and Megan are kind of, and, and Taryn Temple. Um, we're supposed to, yeah, we're the numbered shows kind of like base team. And then from there you go into tournament shows. And I think Taryn's on all of them because she's really good at the in-cage interviews. Like she's another talent. Like that's the thing is Shannon, she's really good at finding that talent. And like, I think TJ DeSantis is like the, like the unspoken hero of every single card of all existence. Because he seems to be there fixing things and helping people, like in all the fight, uh, fight pass shows, and in all of the Invicta shows, he's just always there doing that play by play, very steady, always trying to make the other commentators look good. He's a really, really like he's one of my best friends. I love TJ. Um, he's so great, and he's so like I don't understand why he's not a millionaire. <laughs> like the you, every show should be giving him millions because he's so good at like being smooth transitioning and staying calm and it's like you know you get to be a color commentator you're kind of wackadoo right like or at least i am <laughs> and from what i've listened from other color commentators they're pretty wackadoo themselves but you know it's just like you're saying whatever as a color commentator because you're explaining the why but he explains the what and so as play-by-play again which laura senko has also done play-by-play they know how to do this shit like they're good at it um that's a uh, you know, that's a skill set that where you have to remain even keeled. And that's not, it's never been one of my skills to be even. I've always been like way too excited about everything that's <laughs> happening. <laughs> Are there any differences as far as rules or for judging? I mean, they're under the unified rules, but because we're mostly in Kansas, we have the, um, like the open scoring. Okay. Explain that. So open scoring, um, they tell people well, what they do is they tell the corner what the score is in between rounds. So everybody should know the score in between rounds. Oh, I like that. Yeah. And so it's between right now at this point, it's between a fighter and their corner, whether or not the fighter knows the score. And I like to tell, like, I always say, oh, I would never want to know. You know, I want my, my coach to tell me what it is. And that's kind of dumb because as a fighter, you know, just be professional and know what if you're winning or losing, right? <laughs> I think your coach is supposed to tell you the intricacies, not how to fight. Like, um, you know, just like, okay, try this. But um, yeah, no, open scoring is pretty cool. And Kansas, I think it's been successful. A lot of people critique Kansas commission, and I understand that. I think every commission is up for critique. Because it's really hard to... Fights are hard to call in general, yeah. especially MMA. Like you want to say this is a 10-9 round or this is this and this, but like it's like everything is so subjective and in the air and you want to, you know, but what I love about the Kansas Commission is whether or not they're flawed or make strange calls, which everybody's going to say people in the Midwest make strange calls. That seems to be a huge refrain. Like there's no good commission ever ever, but you know, Kansas and Missouri and Texas and they're just ter- terrible and California, you know, it's like there's always somebody who's just the worst ever and it changes every time there's a fight score that people don't agree with. And it's not that I disagree with some scoring being bad. It's just like, it seems to be every fight or every pronouncement of this, that this commission is the worst ever is always out there and always changing. But um, 
what I do admire about Kansas is that they make an effort to be as open as possible. Like they open, they have somebody on Twitter who's explaining what's going on as it's going on. So every time there's an Invicta and there's open scoring, and I'm pretty sure this is with other shows too, they're just like, okay, ask us your questions while this fight is going on. Or, at, or what? why we qu- called this score, and we'll explain it to you. And they also debrief after shows. And they go through the footage of what's going on and the score and the score and the score. So whether or not I agree with one of their calls or not, I absolutely 100% appreciate the effort that they're going in to try to be accountable for it. Like, if we could have that with every commission, that'd be really great. Like, and I'm sure there's other commissions that are that on the ball. I'm not trying to throw anybody else under the bus. It's just, I see this every time. And I really appreciate it. Like it's, you know, there's an attempt to be very open. So it's like whether or not people agree with and believe me, I've been very heated about scores that I disagree with and call, you know, I was like, there's no way that person won that fight. What are you talking about? Or I don't know. There's an argument. When I go back and I watch the fight and I see how they explained it, it's like we said about earlier about like history and and like its its viewpoints, its perspective is just like, okay, there's gonna be human error in scoring. But at least there's somebody who's saying, this is what I thought. And whether or not you think they're justifying it or not, at least they're putting it out there as opposed to people who are just like, no, it's my score. That's it. If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. It'll help us supplement the cost of running this project, the incredible time and energy we put into it seven days a week. And you'll be giving us some breathing room. Not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also to expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. So do you, as the broadcaster then in between rounds, know what the score is? Yes, but not necessarily right away. Because they're collecting it and putting it up. So sometimes I don't know the score. Like, I want to. And I'm like, okay. And then that that sucks because then you get called out. Well, why don't they? It's open scoring. Why aren't they saying the scores right? It's like, well, we don't. We can probably fix that. I think there's there's like a Google spreadsheet where I could be logged in and know that right away when it's, it's flashing at me. But the way that you get a minute to talk about what happened during that round. And so it's like, I'm not looking at my phone in between rounds. Like I need to do that or I need to fix it. So it'll flash up at me or, or, but you know, I'm talking about they're replaying parts of the round for me. And so that's why it's, I, I'm not always down with a third person commentary booth when I'm listening to a fight or watching a fight, but in Invicta, it's great. Like we know, okay, Megan's going to take the scoring. She's going to talk about the scoring. You're going to talk about the breakdown of the fights in between rounds. And TJ is going to talk about this. And then therefore, everybody has a role. So that's really cool. I have to say, of three-person commentary booths, me, TJ, and Laura, me, TJ, and Megan, they work, man. Like, that kind of breakdown, that works really well. Like, we all know what's going on, and we throw to each other. I won't say which UFC fighter it is, but it's not one who's well-liked. Um, when Laura was breaking down the Von Flu choke that happened, and, like, TJ pitched to her... It's like, Laura, break it down for us because, you know, so I could, because I didn't see it from my angle. And then people were like, he didn't even know you knew and he didn't know what it was. And it was just like, TJ knows exactly what a Von Flew <laughs> choke is, you guys. He's saying that to pitch it to her so she knows it's her time to talk. Come on. Like, oh, it made me so mad. I was just like, Julie, don't get into a fight with people <laughs> over a dumb comment on an Instagram. But I was just like, of course, Laura knew what that was and TJ knew what that was and I knew what it was. You know, it was just like, 
ah, like he was pitching. <laughs> he knows what's going on in a fight, guys. <laughs> now, what about the demographics for the Invicta fan culture? Do you find that Invicta has a different audience as far as MMA? Well, I'd like to say a better one, but <laughs> I don't know. Invicta has extraordinarily loyal fans, extraordinarily loyal fans, which is, you know, that's what you want, right? Um, but it also has fans who are loyal to a particular fighter or not a particular fighter. And because of COVID, we've had uh, strange combinations of fight church fights. And, you know, we fight in that um, church turned into a fight, which is incredible, which I've written an essay about, but I've never published. And I, <laughs> I have to get on that because the history of that place is so cool. But they, so those fight church are usually, they're closed. They're just broadcast and there's like, you know, nobody there. Or there's been fights that are in front of, you know, a limited public during COVID. And so um, our last show was a fight church one um, because Omicron and all these other things had really gotten, that sprung up. Um, And I have to say, like, that is one thing Shannon is so diligent about. Like, I so appreciate that because so many other people just blow COVID. Like, they're just like, oh, it's not a big deal. And I'm just like, okay, guys, over 800,000 people in this country have died, like millions worldwide. Like, you may not think it's a big deal. But after a while, it's like, why are you fighting math? But what I will say is that she's extremely diligent and extremely cautious and she puts everybody's health first. And because of that, we haven't had as many shows in the past couple of years. Um, and the ones that we have had have been very limited. But I would say that the support from female fighters is always big. Like, female fighters know Invicta. And female fighters watch Invicta. And for me, who was a female fighter, who wanted to make things more equal for female fighters, who who just who fought with kind of the mentality of like, okay, the generation after me is not going to have to work this like like this. Like everybody's going to have to work hard, everybody's going to have to struggle, but they're not going to have to go through these struggles. That feels like a bonus. I feel like a win um, because it, MMA for women is not a sideshow, and I think many things have have made that happen but invictus definitely like instead of saying this is a circus it was like this is special and this is real and this is normal um it's not average but it's not something like you know it's it's not something abnormal it's not something that is a strange thing for women to do it's a thing that women do certain women do and that's important and i think the fact that it's all women really reinforced that that mentality so yeah what invicta did it wasn't the first all-female show but i would say it's definitely and it's always going to be the best one because you also mentioned joe rogan earlier would you say your online experience changed after the Joe Rogan experience? There's <laughs> another essay I haven't published yet. You know, it's funny because I know it's unpopular to say this, but I actually really liked him. I don't know if I, I still like him. I don't know him. I know the person that I talked to for that time. In person when you talked to him. Yeah, yeah. I met him several times in person. I liked him. I thought, this is a good man. This is a man I don't agree with a ton of shit on, but I'd rather talk about what we can talk about as opposed to arguing. And that's kind of what, when I went into that interview, I was like, I don't want this agenda of trying, like, I just want to talk and learn about this person who's had such an effect on the sport that I love because he has like, like him or hate him or love him or hate him or whatever. Like Joe Rogan is like, he is synonymous with the UFC brand in so many ways. And that's what I grew up listening to. His voice is what I grew up listening to. 
watching fights, you know? And it's like, that's, that was super important to me to meet him and talk to him. And I really liked him. And I have to say, oh my God, like, especially these past couple of years, I'm like, what the fuck, dude? <laughs> like, what, who are you? But haven't we all felt like that about our family members and friends and people you went to school with? It's just like, what is happening? And part of me wonders if that's not cyclical and that's what every human being goes through in their life where they're just recognizing that chasms between us are way bigger when they're public. I don't know. I don't know. I just, it's, I think people are so insanely complex. Like I think about how much, and I'm, I'm, I know I'll come back to Joe Rogan, but this is the ADHD mind. But I think about like how much I admire John Brown. And then I think about, oh, there was actually somebody who tried to overthrow the government, like a bunch of people, like, you know, in, in 2021. And I, I don't agree with them. I also don't agree with a lot of what the government's done, but that's, that's different. Like, and why am I supporting this guy? And I was just like, well, John Brown was an incredible hero in America. He, you know, for all his flaws and he had them, he at his core wanted to abolish slavery. And that makes it really complex for me to think about him, you know, think about killing people in the way to saving other people. Is that the right way to do it? I don't know. I, I wasn't there. And then I think, you know, I guess I can't fully, I can't fully hate Joe Rogan, even though I hate the effect of what he's platformed, you know, because if I want to be fair and generous to the person standing next to me, like on the bus or whatever it is, like. I don't know their story. I don't know everything about them. And even though I would absolutely beat the ever living shit out of Alex Jones, if I ever met him or Ben Shapiro or any of those motherfuckers, I, the person I talked to, maybe it was manipulative. I don't know. I liked them when I was talking to them. I liked Joe Rogan, but his audience, my God, the rape threats and death threats I got from just talking <laughs> as a woman for some people, it's good, right? They go on there. And if they have the right view, a very right wing view, it launches them into the stratosphere. But for other people, right, you can see like they would go on once and they never come back. And it's like something happened there. Yeah, I don't think he'll ever have me back. Let's talk about the audience. Like, what was that experience then? It's so creepy. Like it was like, so you're just coming out of that. And like, I'm somebody like, especially at that time, what was that 2016, 2017, something like that? I was like checking my phone all the time. Like I was still in that mindset of it's super fun to be on Twitter. It's super, and it is at times, but usually when I'm drunk is when I'm on Twitter nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, or not, you know, I mean, it's like, it's, or it's like I'm trying to wind down and not think about the things I have to stress out during the day. And like, it, it was like the amount of people just saying what a fucking idiot I was Whoa. and how I never knew what I was talking about, how they would take me out back and rape me. They would do this to me. They would like, what a fucking moron. Look at how much she wants to have sex with him. Look how much she would like. And I was just like, what are you guys talking about? I'm talking to this man. I don't even know that well. and trying to get to know him. But that is actually the atmosphere that was, that he kind of created in his studio where I just, you know, he's very, there's something beguiling about that. Not sexual. I didn't feel anything sexual in there. I just felt like this is a person I want to talk to. And like, it, it, there's something in that atmosphere that's, and I tried to bring it up on the show. I said something about heterotopia um, and just like creating these spaces where it's like, you know, you're, you're in this space that's other, the liminal spaces. Yes. Yeah. I remember that. He wasn't understanding. No. And I was like, that's too bad because this is funny because I wanted to talk about Foucault and like things like that. And I thought he was on that level, but I was like, okay. So, but it is the, the podcast. I mean, even now talking to you, I have no idea how long we've been talking, but you just want to talk about yourself or what you're thinking or what's going on. And when you have somebody directly across from you, 
especially after being in grad school and kind of feeling like I had been beat up from grad school intellectually, talking to somebody who challenged me, well, actually talking to somebody who challenged me on these weird emotional, non-intellectual levels was weird. Because it was just like, no, no, it's this way. And I was like, that's actually not what science says, but I don't even want to engage with you because you're not going to believe me. And it's just, we're just like, you know, that's kind of how I felt when he was talking about some stuff. I was like, okay, there's no argument I can make here. Let's just move on to the next thing. You know, and that's wrong too. Like, that's the thing is the fan base are always going to tell you what's wrong with what you do and what's wrong with what you could have done and what's wrong with what you're going to do. And like, okay, well, she let that subject go because she wants to fuck him. <laughs> or look at the way he owned her. He just beat all the liberalism out of her. Like, and it's just like, no, I just let go an argument I just didn't want to engage with because that's not why I'm here. Like, but it's that discourse that like gets into these weird, weird areas. And you just don't know, well, where do I go from here? Like, what do I talk about? Like, okay, I can tell you that what you're saying about Black Lives Matter it might have been true in one incident, but the protests that I've been to and I've experienced have been tremendous. Ah, there it is. In like ninth time, I've said tremendous. There you go. But it's just like, but it's not going to resonate with you because your experiences, it carries more weight in your head. You're not allowing for other experiences. You know, when I was listening to it at the time, right? I didn't listen to it recently, but I remember thinking to myself, I don't think you mentioned Foucault, but I recognize Foucault. And uh, I was like, I don't think she realizes that Joe Rogan always talks about these out-of-body experiences and like the pineal gland and none of this is real. And we're just like <laughs> astral bodies, right? So he's there, but then he doesn't know who Foucault is. Yeah, I know. I know. He's like almost at Foucault, but in his world, in his space where he's talking about this stuff, nobody knows who Foucault is. That shows you <laughs> what's wrong with this guy. I know. I know. How do you engage in that world without knowing Foucault? And secondly... How do you talk about that we are just like these astral bodies and none of this is real, but then gender is real? How do you come to that conclusion, right? <laughs> I know. But it, what, it's like, and there's also the ethics of all of it, which I wanted, like, God, it's taken me so long to come on board with ethics. Like, even, that's one of the reasons I haven't written my book, because I'm like, is this actually ethical to say these things and do these things? Not the person that I'm writing about and how much it'll hurt them. I don't give a fuck about them. But what about their family? You know, like, what about what it'll do to their family? What about that? And it's just like, he doesn't care about that shit. And so it's like, <laughs> if you want to engage, like, in these topics, I want to bring the science behind it. I want to be able to quote people. I want to say this or that. I'm just going to let it go. And when you let it go, the other person's won. And it's like, I can't care. Like, it's like talking to a Wikipedia entry. <laughs> Because it's going to change all the time and they're going to say, well, this person said this, but they're never actually going to quote the study, right? They're never going to cite the study. They're just going to like, oh, it's so hard. I saw you trying to connect the dots because I saw that you knew enough about him where he almost got to the point on his own, like independently. And you were like, you know, maybe you should check out Foucault and then go all the way. But he just <laughs> wouldn't get it. Yeah, I know. But it's funny. It's like also... There's this whole part of me that that's the person in my mind who doesn't, isn't quite there, who I was in grad school, right? Like I was the quote unquote Karen or whatever. I was the person who wasn't putting it together with all these very intellectual, high level, freaking, you know, like Ivy League people. And I'm just sitting there like, what? I like fighting. <laughs> and it's just like, I felt like... I felt way more empathy for him as somebody who believes they know what they're talking about because that's what I came into grad school like. And so it was just so hard to be like, to be mean. But, you know, but if you want to talk fan bases, his fan base decided I, I was completely owned and all I was there for was sex. And 
this and that and I'm an idiot and yeah. you know it's these other things it's just like like on there I was just I don't even know like politically I was just like god you I can engage with this I can say the things I want to say but you just want the sound bites anyway yeah so citations are going to get me nowhere and I don't even know the proper citations at this point I can't bring that to mind I'm not coming in here with a list because then it's not it's not engaging so he's good at that like I have to say you control the environment you control what happens in it and he's very good at that like shit I mean you know what do you do with that you just have to kind of create your own environments and you also have to which is actually from that experience from that experience and from just some of the things I've had to shut out in my life and it's just like again I think he's probably not a terrible human being I know that's not something I'm supposed to say but people are really really flawed and people who get a whole bunch of money and not a lot of pushback on that are insanely flawed because they just double down on their flaws. Just as his audience get programmed by the algorithm, and it used to be mostly YouTube algorithms, I think he himself has been programmed and conditioned by the algorithm because the algorithm tells the viewers what to watch, but then the algorithms tell him what to say. Like These are the things that are popular that are getting me more clicks and making me more money. And so then he runs towards that and then that's all he ever talks about and then that's all he believes yeah no you're totally right like we are who we surround ourselves with and if you're never going to challenge what you're surrounded with and i know i've been accused of being in an echo chamber all the time and i actually like you know like blocked my twitter or whatever did the thing on it so i wouldn't get new followers i just we are who we surround ourselves with but sometimes if you're not surrounding yourself or you're not listening to the voices that are in opposition to what you're saying, even if what you believe, I mean, what you believe in, if you, if you can be challenged about what you believe in, it'll make you not double down on belief, but maybe double check what you believe in. <laughs> like, that's kind of important. That's actually how science works. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's just like, I just listening to people's sh- shit on vaccines. And there's one part of me, like I taught the immortal life of Henrietta Lacks. This country has a super flawed history, a super challenging history when it comes to science and government interacting together. Like I'm saying, oh, I taught this book, so I know all about it. That's not true. I'm just saying as an example, like I understand how there are segments of American culture who just cannot trust the government because of what they've been subjected to. There's also segments of American culture who've decided not to trust the government because they've decided they've been subjected to things because they've had so much privilege. They've never realized what other people have been subjected to. And I know that's like a really twisted argument. I'm just like, Jesus Christ, people like the thing about science is it's all about proving that your theory is wrong and you find all the ways to prove your theory wrong. And like, I'm surrounded by scientists. That's why I went into literature. I was so sick of it. (laughs) Like, I'm just like, no, I want to do writing stuff. Um, But it's just like, I can't believe that people are just like, no, it's all a conspiracy. It's all this is like, no, man. These people are the ones who challenge facts because they want to understand how the atom works in the world. You know, they want to understand how the virus works in the world. Like, I don't know. I've gotten in this weird track of watching superhero movies. Like, I went through the DC superhero movies and now I'm going through the Marvel ones. And I've got a lot of opinions about them that get me in trouble on Twitter. But I'm just like, the one thing that you see over and over again is whatever the superhero is, they always get completely beat down. And then they come to some kind of realization and they grow stronger mentally, physically, emotionally, whatever it is. Or they bring on somebody else and that person helps them. It's just like, why the fuck do people love this so much and they don't understand 
how vaccines work. <laughs> that blows my mind. <laughs> the virus evolves. It beats you the first time. So you have to change and you have to find another way to fix it. Here's you trying to connect the dots for Rogan listeners again. Right? <laughs> yeah, I know. It's <laughs> like, why is this like you can see it when somebody's wearing a cape, but you won't understand that people have dedicated so much of their lives to doing this. Like, I mean, oh my God. Like, yeah, it's it's insane to me. Like, but I do understand that there's some people who are just not going to trust science. And I just, I tend to think that if they have not been part of a segment of, well, every segment of society thinks that they're challenged all the time and that they're, okay, that's a mean thing to say. But if you're not a person of color, if you're a cis white, generally male, but not always male, um, person in America who feels like you're insanely oppressed it's not that i'm saying you're you haven't had a hard time but i'm just like you have not been the subject of all the oppression yeah maybe just shut the fuck up and listen (laughs) and that's something i had to shut the fuck up and listen to grad school so i i mean not in grad school was too late right it was too late to learn this but that's why i'm a karen so yeah (laughs) i think that's a good place to end where can people find you um oh that's a good question because <laughs> my twitter is like locked out um so my twitter account actually all my accounts are at jules k underscore fighter but i i sometimes i open my account up um and that's my instagram account because i don't really care what happens on there and then they could also see you on evicta right yes you can see me on evicta um or on only the podcast i like to be on <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've been actually a jerk to MMA media. I've got it. You're you're the first MMA media person I've talked to in a really long time. Awesome. So if you consider yourself that, like, but I just like, yeah, um, man, I've had a really great year. It sounded like I was complaining this whole time. But my sister wrote a book called Origin, a genetic history of the Americas. And her name is Dr. Jennifer Raff. And she is so good. She just got off. I don't know if you know Patrick Wyman, but she just got off his podcast today, uh, plugging this book. They're really good friends. Um, yeah, origin, a genetic history of the Americas, and it's about, you know, she's a she's a geneticist, she's an anthropologist, she does ancient DNA work, and I helped her write it. Which, well, I didn't help her write it. I I helped her with the parts to make them, uh, I guess, more connected and in a literary way, if that makes any sense. Like, I helped the snobby parts, but um, <laughs> uh, but just you know, to make the narrative like the connections and the patterns in the narrative connecting those dots that you're so good at. Yeah. In, in some ways, like I love doing that. That's my favorite, favorite part of commentary. It's my favorite part of everything. It's just connecting the dots. And, um, it's just with her because there's so much that she does. And so she, she's just done so much for the field. And her big thing is, no, I want other people to talk. This is the science. This is the genetics doing the work. Like, right? Like, this is that other people should take this story and go with it. Like, this is, you know, this is a way to say everything that the white people have been doing so far is fucking wrong. (laughs) Um, And it's not in one of those Joe Rogan ways. It's actual real science. And just like, but it's just, it's what I love about it. It's so beautiful because it incorporates how, in so many ways, like what I love about the essay, like I said, the real history and the love of the essay is how it isn't just words on a page and five paragraphs doing this it's how people how the essay is you know a thought and an evolution of a thought and how it's being communicated and she's you know she really talks about how the western approach to science has left out so many of the details that make you know like civilization and culture especially non-white civilization culture so beautiful and so rich and 
we really need to examine how that's actually in the DNA of people. Like you can find these stories and she's, it's really smart and it's really good. And I'm not doing a very good job of pitching it. Did you happen to read how the word is passed by Clint Smith? No. Okay. That's by my sister's book first, but then that, that was my absolute favorite book that I read in 2021. Okay. And it is, I, I don't I see the connections in it, but, um, I, they don't know each other. I've, <laughs> like they're not working together, but I just, they connect in your mind. In my mind, they connect. So buy both of them and see how they connect, do the math and come back to me and we'll, we'll discuss. <laughs> All the books that we mentioned here, including your essay, I'll link in the show notes. Oh, that's amazing. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, thank you for your time, Julie. Yeah, thank you. I'm sorry I talked so much, but this was so comfortable for me. (laughs) Better than Rogan. Way better than Rogan. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah.